Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Legacy Podcast. Today, we have an enormous privilege, Loretta, because we have some very special guests. But before we get to the special guests, let our audience know what our podcast is about, and don't forget to thank our sponsors <laughs> for all the wonderful work that, you know, as I enjoy this wonderful environment that we're in. Good morning. I'm just trying to get over a cold here, but when I look outdoors, I've got to say thank you to Bahamar and the gallery here, at the Echo Gallery here, for our sponsorship, along with the Butler Legacy Foundation, who are our sponsors. So it's a beautiful day here in the Bahamas. It's an amazing setting here in the Echo Gallery. And Franklin, you're always so excited. I, I, I think about coming here every day when, we, when we're going to, to go ahead and do our shoots. So welcome, good morning, and thank you to our sponsors. And yes, again, you have really pegged some amazing guests. So we must introduce them. I want you to know this is family. I don't pay her to say what she said, but this is a joint effort. Loretta and I spend a lot of time, you know, usually over a nice glass of wine and some of her good cooking, figuring out what the next episode's gonna look like. But Loretta, we get distracted like we always do when we get together. And so let's get to our guests. Two of our guests, Loretta, are very special to me because they were former teachers of mine. Uh, Dr. Nicolette Bethel, who was a former director of culture and now a professor at the University of Bahamas. Um, she taught me in grade seven, so it's an honor. <laughs> and anything I mess up, I'm sorry in my English language, but I've learned all I can learn, so there's only <laughs> tweaks from here. I think you're good. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and then our next guest is Dr. Chris Curry. He didn't necessarily te teach me, but he taught some of my very closest friends, uh, you know, Jamal Jones and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Colin Jupp, and they speak very highly. Horatio Poitia, these guys, like, I don't know, you were like, a mini god to them in terms of history. Every time it was a history class in the CAF or afterward, they'd be talking about, you know, Dr. Chris Curry's. Uh, I don't know how the teachers survived you all. Listen, I think we turned out reasonably well. So it, it worked out well. We, we survived Dr. Curry and. Uh, <laughs> I love it. And, and, the, and we, they survived us. I was going to say, when I met them, they were just so cute. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, what they grew up to be, you know? <laughs> and then, of course, oh my goodness, my very special guest, I love Stephen. I love Stephen Hannah. That's me. I mean, he, I, yeah. I used to work for him, so I was, I was just a little hurt. Exactly. A little hurt that he was like, exactly. he said two people. He exactly. Like, okay. That's fine. And so, but, no, but the amazing thing me. is, you worked for him, <laughs> and you've done so much with me. Yeah. I, I really appreciate all that you do in the creative arena, and so yes. What an amazing lineup of guests. Yes, thank you for having me, and my colleagues. I'm sure they feel the same way. Yeah. Thank, thank you. You all are such professionals. Yes. <laughs> So as you all know, you know, uh, we, we started this podcast as a way of really commemorating the life and legacy of Sumailo. Mm -hmm. There's just so many elements and facets to his life that, you know, quite frankly, we've benefited from as, as his offspring now, G3 for Loretta and I. And so really as the 50th anniversary, we thought, listen, how could we, what could we do to really preserve this legacy? And so we've had guests come on the show to talk about various aspects of his life. And so today we want to, you know, get straight to it. You know, tell us, you know, uh, Dr. Curry, you know, off air, you start to talk a little bit about Samilo. So, you know, I will just say, listen, you know, delve in and tell us a little about, you know, Samilo's impact on you and your family, because I, I think what you shared is incredibly interesting. Well, I'll start with that because that comes directly from my dad. My dad is turning 79 in April this coming month. Oh, wow. And uh, he says when he started his job, uh, and let's just be honest, there was some white privilege going on here. My no dad came out of high school. Uh, he went to Sacred Heart and then Aquinas, okay. the Catholic school system. And then he got hired at like age 18 as a teller at Royal Bank. And this would have been like around 1958, 59. Yeah. And um, he says to me that Sir would always come into the bank, the Royal Bank of Canada, Bay Street branch, the main branch. And he would rail when he walks in every time uh, <laughs> on schedule because he just hated the fact that he was walking into this white space where all the tellers were white men, all of the banking managers behind uh, in the, the rooms, or whatever, in the bank were all white. And, and here is a man who has a business and wants to conduct business, but he has to deal with the fact that all of the tellers are white. There are no black tellers. And so he saw in this the racial issues at play. And so um, he, he would make a very clear point about 
pointing these things out. But the interesting thing my dad always says to me, despite all of that, he would still come to my dad, only my dad for some reason, yeah. and conduct business with my dad. You know, it says a lot to what I've learned about Sir Milo, which is to say that the man was very clear in his uh, views, yeah. and he stood on his views, and he stood for what was right. But he also had this gentle side. He was a gentleman. He was dignified, but not docile, Absolutely. meaning that he would stand up for what was right, and he would rail against what was wrong. But he also understand the human character, the human condition, and he met each individual on their level. And so my dad had respect for him, <laughs> even though he noted what he would do when he came in the bank. Yeah. yeah. But so, I, it's probably because your mm -hmm. dad had respect for him. Yeah. He, and he knew that. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we hear this so many times, you know, as we have kind of unpacked the story in the life of, of Samila, right? And I think it has implications for our country. And it's one of the things that, you know, we talked about in a previous episode is this idea that Samila said he never hated the white man. Mm -hmm. He just hated his ways. And I think that story is one, you know, that just exemplifies that. It obviously, it, it wasn't about being white, it was about making sure that everybody had an opportunity. So it wasn't like, listen, why can't there be black people tellers or uh, black managers in the bank? I mean, surely we had the same level of knowledge and acumen and that sort of thing, you know, in a, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a country. And so I think the reality is that's really what Samilo focused on for much of his life was really championing this idea of equality. And so when you talk about the ways, you know, just to even be more articulate, um, Chris talks about the white privilege. Yeah. And I think those are the things, those unwritten ways that, you know, whites were propelled to certain positions, whether they were white indigenous Bahamians or whether they were white foreigners that came here. But that bank stood as a monument to that white um, mm. sort of oligarchy mm -hmm. type thinking yeah. back then that our grandfather really riled against. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm so glad you're able to share that story with us mm -hmm. that your dad has shared with you. Yeah, yeah I, and I think there's a misunderstanding that always happens around this whole point about race. And let me just be clear what I mean by that. Um, Marcus Garvey was often accused of being a racist. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because he promoted black awareness. He promoted black pride. He promoted black history. And yet people said, well, because he's a black nationalist, therefore he hates white people. He always says, it's not that I hate white people. I just happen to love my own kind. Yeah. So I believe what, what Samila, the essence of him is this man who absolutely loved his people, but he also saw the racial injustice that was going on in the Bahamas at the time. And he wanted to eradicate that issue as best he could. Yeah, great. Dr. Bethel, let's get you into this uh, conversation as well. I mean, there's a deep and long-standing history of our families. So I'll let you unpack that as a starting uh, connected to the conversation and maybe your experiences with Samilo. And certainly I know Juanita and many of the family members that you know very well. So I won't, I won't spoil it for the audience. I'll let you handle that and then we'll get you in, Stephen, as well. So I try to figure it out, but <laughs> I know that I knew your grandparents before Samilo was the governor general because my grandmother, Winnie Eldon, was good friends with your grandmother. Yeah. And they used to visit each other. And so when, when Samilo became the governor general, my grandmother could not come too. She was so proud. And she continued to hang out with your grandmother. I'm not sure how it worked when they got to government house, <laughs> but whatever. My grandmother was never shy about going places or standing up for anything that she believed in either. That's probably why she got on well with your family. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and then in the next generation, my father, who was one of the early educators, local Bahamian black educators, well, I don't want to say that because a lot of the teachers were black, but he was one of the few who actually was given, right after majority rule, serious authority. He was made deputy headmaster of a brand new school. Yeah. And I don't know if my father was even 30 at that time, um, that would have been in 1968. He, he turned 30 that year. Wow. And they had established this new school, mm. which was known at the time as Highbury High. High. Yep. And your aunt was the headmistress. Yeah. And my father was the deputy head. And his good friend, Winston Saunders, probably from that time, was the senior master, all at Highbury High. Mm -hmm. And um, they loved working yeah. with your aunt, Juanita. But you know, the connectivity it goes even deeper than, you know, the uh, educational thread. Because when she refers to her 
her grandmother, Ms. Eldon. Mm -hmm. Remember now, this is the mother of Bishop Thank Michael you. Eldon, which obviously mm -hmm. is our church. Yep. And of course, they lived in the same vicinity. When you talk about the pond, when you talk about East Bay Street, when you talk about the Simonettes and you talk about the Eldons and you talk about the Butlers and all the people that made up that neighborhood, we go back so far. And it's interesting. And, you know, it's, Sorry. It, 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 no, we just go back so far. There were so many shared yeah. um, uh, commonalities and the education was like high among all of them. These That breed, your father, Juanita, Bishop Eldon, they were of that new, um, back then, that millennial group of educators right. that, that, that prospered just after the governance, the change of governance in yeah. 67. They were all beneficiaries of that. Um, so Chris talks about white privilege and my, my mother and my uncle were very different shades. And so my mother was one of the few people who could, of color, who could be a teller. And she was a teller in that same Royal Bank um, for about nine months before she went off to university. My uncle also worked in that same bank, but they did not allow him to be a teller. Now, he was an incredible mathematician. That's right. So they had him in the back okay. calculating stuff. Um, and that would have been pounds, shilling, and pence. Yep. So he was adding up in three different denominations and whatever, right? Um, but mommy, that whole, that white privilege even separated families mm -hmm. because even within mommy's family, she being light-skinned and he being darker, there was a separation between the sister and the brother and the mm -hmm. kinds of things that they were permitted uh, to do. Um, and it was weird because there were all kinds of little... Nuances. Yeah, and accommodations made. Oh, absolutely. Because my grandfather... Um, Sidney Eldon was the first controller of customs of color. He didn't think he was of color, but my grandmother would remind him. <laughs> I of remind him. Exactly. Of, course, exactly. of course, you know, that's the Eldon lineage and the, and the Eluthra. Exactly. Right, the Eldons, the Eldons up on Hawkins Hill, they were all like, no, uh, uh, <laughs> right, Indians. <laughs> and, and that's so interesting because, you know, once again, when we talk about this differentiation of the racial divide, we then realize how much commonality there is between us. And we, we also, we mix up like Kong salad, Obviously. but we literally are. And so when you look at Bishop Michael Eldon and then you look at his sister and, you know, Dr. Bethel articulated it well, they were of two different shades, but from the same parentage. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, mommy felt that all her life. She felt as though she, she, she bore that burden because she felt that Uncle Michael had to struggle a lot harder. It was just, it was just a thing. Yeah. Um, of course, when Uncle Michael became the bishop, yeah, yeah. everybody who was like, oh, we have this dark-skinned member of the family and we don't recognize him, all of a sudden they were like, oh, yes, Michael is our cousin. And <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and so we got to draw you into this as yeah. well as a Hannah, you know, because, I mean, obviously when you, when you, think, of, when you think of the Hannahs, um, once again, that is a family of diverse hues, but also huge intellect. And well, thank um, you. Thank you know, you. no, no. I mean, because you know, this is where when we when we start to talk about legacies, yep. we've got to look at the historical approach, where the Hannahs come from, who you're related to, your lineage, and everything, because we all become this amalgamation yeah. of who we are as a people. I have so many like during this, I had so many questions. It's like one. The, the high school that you were talking about, what became, well, what, what high school is that? Oh, I R and Bailey. It's R and Bailey. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and then like, what became of those persons? Because I know like, you always hear about government high mm -hmm. and the classes that graduated at government high and, and like, oh, we got all the nation leaders from, from this set of class. And so it'd be interesting to see from the different high schools well, who are the persons that became nation leaders from these different high schools? It's so interesting you should say that because off air, we were talking about the significance of Highbury High mm -hmm. and how in our estimation, we thought it produced a whole generation of leaders. But of course, later on, the school's name was changed yeah. when they decided to 
place educators' names right, on the, the names of the schools, which in turn, it became R.M. Bailey. Right. So if you talk about the Highbury High, it would have been the Highbury High. Like the government high, you know? And uh -huh. so it's interesting you should raise that. Yeah, and, and even with uh, that idea of naming schools after educators, I went to CW Sawyer, I know nothing about C.W. Sawyer. I know more about uh, C.R. Walker mm -hmm. and Mabel Walker, but mm -hmm. Mabel Walker isn't in the school anymore, right. than I know about C.W. Sawyer or that I know about C.H. Reeves. I know nothing about C.H. Reeves. Mm. And I went to C.H. Reeves as well. Yeah. Right? And so, but I, and, and even when it comes to Milo Butler, part of the, the concern that I have, right, is that for persons who grew up with the notebook, right, yeah. they know what he looks like. And they kind of have an idea. People say, oh, this is the first black governor general. For persons who had a $20 bill, you might be vaguely familiar with his face. But now that we're in one, people broke. Yep. We're in a cashless society. I don't see the Milo Butler notebooks as much anymore. We run the risk of losing even just the iconography. And we don't even get to the point of what the picture even meant to start the story or the, or the legacy or the story or, or the message. But you know? you've just segued into the whole, the depth of what we want to discuss here today yeah. and the purpose, the history, why you would have gone to C.W. Sawyer and the iconic educator, you know nothing, you learned nothing about that person there. So I've got to ask Dr. Bethel, I've got to ask Dr. Curry as educators. What do we do? <laughs> where's our history? There, uh, don't where's get me, our history? Don't get me started. In books started. unread, well, probably. So, so Go oh, ahead. You you, wanna, no, you just read it first. So one of the things that really bothers me today is that in trying to, and so this whole idea of Highbury High and the government high school, what was being tried at that time up until independence, I guess, was to create schools that had excellent education. The government high school was really a British style grammar school, yep. which is why it is different from what we know today, which are more comprehensive. And if you know anything about Britain and its educational system, a grammar school is created to breed elite leaders, yeah. not just elite members of the upper classes, but to allow people from lower and middle classes to get that kind of education to be able to move up. But they're often, um, or many, in many cases, they're merit-based. So you sit an exam and they have a small fee. So you have to try something, right? Or you have to pay a little bit. And that was how government high school was. Right. In 1968, with Cecil Wallace Whitfield as um, the Minister of Education, and I'm not sure whose decision it was, whether it was A.D. Hanna's, he was the very first Minister of Education, or Cecil Wallace Whitfield's, but can it have been either one, of them? One of them. One of them, right? <laughs> um, what are those Ackland's Crooked Island people? <laughs> <laughs> um, they decided to make it comprehensive because it was more inclusive. And by the time I came out of school, I sat the very final common entrance exam, which was the exam that you took so that if you were not from a moneyed background, you could get a scholarship That's to right. attend a private That's school. Right. And they don't even know what the common entrance exam no. is today. No, no. And, and, and schools themselves have to set up that that. Um, scholarship. Like I know St. Andrews has it. I don't know if anybody else Some has Some of that. the other schools do as well. <clears throat> and that meant that you could still rise. But now we have set it up so that our educational system, if you don't have access to money or enough money, yeah. then you do not get uh, the kind of education that will allow you to become a thought leader. Right. You will get much more of a I don't even know what to call it. I don't know what the right word is, but you have more hands-on, generic, hands -on, generic, <laughs> more, more no, generic. Worker, worker, right, right. We're segregating our society yeah, through right. our education. And in all of the public schools, history is optional. But, and, but you know what is it? Technical vocation. Okay. I had to, I had to take woodwork when I was at C CH Reeves. I had, I had to do woodwork, but mm. I, I didn't have to do history. Right, history is Very optional. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's absolutely incredulous that as a young nation, as celebrating our 50th year of independence, that so many of this generation and even the generation before are clueless with regards to our history. Yes. 
And so I think that by us doing this podcast and introducing these things, hopefully we can reawaken um, a spirit of people wanting to understand our history and hopefully get this more into the mainstream educational system. I wanna wanna tackle this from a slightly different angle. I would like to say that if you think about our country, we've only been independent for what will be 50 years this July, Mm -hmm. but we had a colonial apparatus Mm -hmm. in place from 1648. So it's difficult to erase what amounts to over 300 years of colonialism, even in 50 years. But what I'm really saying is that there were vestiges of colonialism that lingered beyond independence. And even though you had A.D. Hanna and you had Cecil Wallace Whitfield and others who are proponents of bohemianization, really uh, progressive in their thinking, there was still always the encumbrance of a colonial educational curriculum that remained in place even after independence. Here's what I wanna say, which is really disturbing to add to what you said, Loretta. The BGCSE curriculum, which came in in the 1990s, Mm It was based on a curriculum that was actually established around 1982 in history at the senior high level. Mm-hmm. That curriculum is only now being changed in 2023. And I am working with the Ministry of Education to put out the changes in the curriculum and a complementary textbook to work along with the curriculum right now. And we hope that it'll be published this year for our 50th. What am I saying though? The fact that you know it took this long to make changes to a subject that is still not mandatory at the senior level is deeply troubling. It is. And you know, now, you know, it comes full circle when you understand when our our children are given projects. Mm-hmm. Projects to do research, mm-hmm. which is good, you know, to get them thinking. But there was always this huge deficit from which they could extrapolate the information that they needed. So you would find that they would be calling up, you know, generations of families like, oh, can you tell us this about Sir Milo? Or can you tell us this about A.D. Hannah? That type of thing. So, okay, this is good news. Because this is what we want. We want, to, we want people to understand that we have a deep heritage. We want to be able to have museums, libraries, and everything where our centers of research, centers of information, where we can go, where visitors can appreciate who we are. Because we're a lot more than what happened in 1973. And, and, you know, the other part about this is that there's almost like a cliffhanger situation where it's like our history ends in 73. It's like that's the culminating point. But we're coming up to our 50th anniversary. A lot of history has happened since 73. Exactly. So, so Dr. Kerry and and Dr. Bethel, you know, Stephen, this is actually, for me, it actually makes me realize that we're on the right path. I said to Loretta, we call this thing the Butler Legacy Foundation. But really, the goal is to make this an institution. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of the institution is because I've witnessed people call Milo Butler and Sons, oh, can you give me some history on some Milo and was this true? We need to create institutions that are able to provide the, the information that students want to really make it relevant. And, and this is why we didn't go the route of a book, even in telling these stories and having you guys using a podcast. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, you were off air. Maybe mm-hmm. the future of education is a podcast is an hour of education and then there's a digital workbook that people get to fill out. Mm-hmm. And as a part of the foundation, we need to make our institutions think that way. Because honestly, I did BGCSE. I was one of the first students to sit it. And I said mm-hmm. that I was in the early days mm-hmm. of taking BGCSEs because they had just cha- changed from GCEs to well, BGCSEs. Well, Sinan's had just changed. Sinan's had just changed. Sinan's so. was one of the holdouts. Okay. The private schools actually were holdouts. The That's government right. schools were already on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember I got the sense that the Anglicans were really battling hard to stay with the English, but you know. Well, of course, because we're we're, we're English Catholics. Church of England, right? (laughs) So, you know, Stephen, as I was talking earlier, one of the things that I find with you is that you've always been able to bring interesting topics to the fore 
in a comedy type setting that connects with people. And you tend to do a lot of historical stuff with that as well. Tell us a little bit more of how that works. And are young people truly interested in our past, in our history that has made us who we are today? I mean, so the short answer is yes. I think that young persons are. I think anybody is interested in something once you make it relevant to them. Or interesting. Right, or interesting. Um, the, reason, the reason why I do it is because of the why. So, and either of these persons could correct me. Uh, so I often say like history is what we did and culture is why we do it. But of course, history is also a part of why we do it. Right? There are things that we do that we don't think about it because we do it every day. And because we never articulate why we've done it or what it means, the next generation may not hold it as important. Oh. And then by, we get, by the time we get to the third and the fourth generation, they might just be like, well, I'm not going to do that at all. And we don't realize there's this whole collapse of society because we, we just stopped doing this one thing. So this is one thing that, okay, so there are almond trees all over New Providence, All sorry. over, yep. that's right. I, for one, when I was growing up, I didn't know that these almond trees were the same almonds that we were buying in the food store. <laughs> and an old man on the, side of the, on the side of the road showed me one time, like I was, it was on one, one of the fours. He's like, you know, that's, that's almonds, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no, he's like, no, that's an almond. He, he breaks it open. Mm -hmm. He shows me the nut. And so like, that's the first time I see that. Then. So you never ate an almond? Before that, no. Out of, out, out of the almonds that drop on the ground yeah. prolifically right. yep. in the Bahamas. In the University of the Bahamas. I'm all over. But That's right. So here's the thing, right? So you don't need to eat the flesh, but so. Right. So you did used to eat the flesh. Well, I didn't eat the flesh. I thought it was weird. I, but I, I eat almond nuts. But later on, so I, I work with the Ministry of Agriculture, right? The, some scientists come down from Israel, well, come up from Israel, mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, you know, this is what we should do in terms of agriculture. And I mentioned to them that, hey, we have all of these almond trees all over the place. And they're like, that's interesting because almond is, it, it takes so much water to grow almonds. Like, you know, and then people are like, some other person's like, I don't think that'd be a good crop and this and that. But I'm like, no, it grows all over the place. And then one day while I was driving, it hit me that the places that the almond trees are growing are in the well fields. Right. They're in, in, inside, right. there are places like Yellow Elder in that's South right. Beach where it, it used to be a marsh or like it was swampy. And it's like, the right, and Oaksfield by COB. <laughs> where and where so, your well fields are. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so now like, it starts to click that somebody in the 70s or whenever they were developing these, these places, they're like, oh, we need to put trees here, but we also need to put a tree that's going to soak up water. Yeah. And it's like, there are so many steps to that almond tree being there where it's like, oh, it's food. It's helping to prevent flooding, but somebody who goes into Yellow Island now might be like, this tree is annoying. Mm -hmm. I want to Absolutely. cut it down because, it yeah, yeah. because between the yeah. 70s and now, nobody ever explained to anybody that tree is preventing your house from falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so it's like things like that are the reason why it's like history is important because like don't cut down the tree because this tree is, is literally saving your life. That is so interesting hearing that from you because you know, when we grew up as kids and you talk about these areas where the almond trees grew prolifically. And if you, if, you know, if you're observant when you're driving, you'll see baby almond trees just literally springing up everywhere. There's a big almond tree. But when we were smaller, because we spent so much time outdoors to entertain ourselves yeah. during our yeah. free time, whether we were jumping over at Potter's Key into the water or coming over to the Eastern Parade where, the, where there were lots of almond trees, yeah. we used to pick the almond trees, mm -hmm. almonds when they got yellow, mm -hmm. along with the tamarinds as well. Mm -hmm. But the almonds, you ate the yellow flesh, right. then you allowed them to dry, and then, of course, when they were all dried, you went outside with a rock and, and you cracked them open and you ate the almond nut inside. So it was healthy. We were doing a lot of stuff that was good for us. We weren't indulging in a lot of um, manufactured um, sugary products. We were enjoying the fruits of what was natural. 
And now you you speak to the reason why we had almonds, and we had to have people come from Israel to tell us to tell us the importance of almonds and why and how they grow. But Stephen, it's, I don't want to get stuck on almonds as the only example. <laughs> no, but I'm saying really around this now. idea of history, right? Right. Because is this an issue of we don't have the history available, or is it that people are more interested in what's in a iPad or, you know, because our culture, we're not outside or outdoors anymore. Because, you know, even like the parades, there was recently the Baptist parade. People used to line off to go to the Baptist parade. And the women's parade And and the women's parade last week uh, on Sunday. So what is it that we're doing? Is this one of, how do we get the engagement back into these historical things that we have done? Because, you know, I think that's really what your satire has the ability to do. But we need to do more of the things that drive young people to understand who they are by understanding their history. Right. I mean, well, that, that definitely comes from making it applicable to them, right? Because people like to think that, like, TikTok is a thing. Once you put something on TikTok, it'll go viral. But no, TikTok is just, a, is just a platform. The iPad is just a medium. You could put the same information on it and people ignore it. Mm-hmm. You have to make the information applicable to those persons. The reason why all that stuff would, would, would even catch my eyes because I out here buy an almond flour for $12, $16 yeah, a pound, right? And then I'm thinking to myself, man, I wish I could make almond flour. Wait, those are almond trees. And literally, especially like on, on Blue Road, there's a guy by, by Hastie's gas station. Right, because you know Hannah hates the entire. They, <laughs> they are, they are an, annoyed by the amount. They're like, oh, it just it, the, yeah. the nuts keep falling off the tree, and yeah. so like they're they're constantly just yes. sweeping and, and clearing it, and it's like that's that's money. Mm-hmm. That's plenty if, money. If somebody like had the, oh, I guess had the foresight to say, okay, I'm going to collect these. We need entrepreneurs enjoy. like Sir Milo, man. Right. We, you know, we need to show people the value in that. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, we need those platforms for this new history. Well, not new history, for the history that we're going to be sharing again. Yeah. So those, those, are the, those are the connective tissues that we need with you doing what you do and with us bringing it all together through um, modern technology. Dr. Kerry, go ahead. I want to speak about another tree the silk cotton tree. Mm. And I want to relate it to how we talk about history in a relatable way for young people. If you know St. Agnes, there's all these silk cotton trees around St. Agnes, around Lewis Street, right? And right across from St. Agnes is also Southern Recreation Grounds. So how is it that you have these trees that are like our redwoods? You know, in California, the redwoods are those trees. They say a car could drive because they're so big. Those are some of the oldest silk cotton trees in the world. They date back to like the 1780s when the loyalists arrived. And they're in an area of political activism. I mean, Southern Recreation Grounds was where people like Garvey spoke. When you had um, the 56th Labor Day Parade, that was where everyone ended up for the great speeches that were made. When... Sir Milo Butler and um, Pinling threw the mason hourglass out of the house of sin. People forget that they ended up at Southern Recreation Grounds, right where those same silk cotton trees are. That was the nexus of political activism. That's where they gathered in 1942 before they went over the hill. Precisely. So so the key thing here is relating history to relatable things. So we know the trees are there. Why not start in a natural environment with the known? We know the trees are there. Why did they... What is the functionality of the tree tree. today? Of course, it provides shade, you know, it's... But talk, telling the story of the tree allows you to tell the story about the people that lived in the spaces between the trees. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it was the, I'm not sure who planted or who nurtured those trees because you find them in the oldest parts of town. Fox Hill too. Oh yeah, Fox Hill of course, but the one tree, and I'm going to say it because Mm. I I can't forgive my church for this. There was a tree in Addington House grounds in the front and it was an ancient tree. I know. Because the roots were big enough for me as a child to sit in them. They were like little rooms. And somebody decided they were going to get rid of this tree. Um, these trees were sacred to the Africans. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they are all over Spain and in the, in the, 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 in the Af- Lib- exactly in the liberated African settlements that's in Fox true. Hill, Baintown, Grantstown. I haven't been out to Adelaide lately and I am not they sure. Do have some there. Yeah, I'm sure they do. They do. They do. Um, in Gambia, they yes. have them there too. Yes. That's where you'll find them. The connection with Africa is there in these silk cotton trees. They are, they are sacred 
Um, I'm not. Sh- I don't know what the sacredness is because we don't have that information, but we know we they're sacred. No, but you know, obviously, they provide a huge amount of shade. Yeah, it's more than you shade. Know? It's a and spiritual. It's more than shade because it's not just the shade. It's. I think it's the roots because if you let them get big enough, a human being can get lost in those roots. Like you can stand there and it's shade. It's all kinds of things, and it's. Yeah, I've always loved those trees. Good. Absolutely. Wow. So let me just ask a question, Dr. Bethel, this idea of relevance. For young people who may not know, what is the Governor General, what is, what is the Governor General's role? Good to know. <laughs> well, the Governor General, first of all, is the Queen's representative. So before we got independent, we had a, a governor, which was a royal governor, which was somebody who was appointed directly by the Crown through the colonial office to go out and rule one of the colonies. When we became independent, um, Caribbean countries took one of two routes. Either they became a republic and got rid of that position and replaced it with a president, and you'd see that in Guyana, Trinidad. Um, I'm sure there's another one before Barbados. But in most of the Caribbean, they maintained the governor general. Mm. And the governor general is still the queen's, or the, now the king's representative, the royal representative. Um, Barbados, as we know, just got rid of that office yeah. and became a republic as well. So that's what the significance is. So Milo, and you know, I haven't seen any governor general wear the regalia that Samilo used to wear. He, I'm glad, no, no, I'm glad you should say that. He only wore it that once, at that once in August of 1973. Oh my God. And he swore with the feathers that, and the yes. plumes and the white regalia that the governor so cool. that the the colonial governors wore and he but said he would never wear them again yep. and it's and it's and, and I, i'm so glad you brought that in because you know when he actually became or it was decided he should be the governor general he was almost a reluctant um candidate if you will mm-hmm. Because he thought that, well, obviously, you know, you could no longer be partisan. You could no longer be proactive in, mm-hmm. you know, your political mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. agendas. And so I don't know if you, you're aware that he, he really was not excited about becoming um, the governor general of the Bahamas. How, how, do you, how do you interpret that? How do you see that um, as we moved forward from that that? that particular point on. So I am actually remembering that reluctance through my grandmother. And people had to convince him that he was the only person who could possibly be it. Because of his, like, you couldn't have Cecil Wallace Whitfield, and you couldn't have Randall Fox, and you couldn't have any of the other freedom fighters. So Milo had been doing what he was doing way longer than anybody in the PLP. He was, he was being an activist and sitting in the House of Assembly as a representative before, as I believe, Grammy used to vote in the city and he yep. was one of the city, um, and he was fighting injustice from the 20s. And yep. so he was the only one who could be it. And people had to sit down with him and say, you have to, because who else could it be, yeah. right? And, and also towards that point in time, and, and I guess you could say the same thing about Dame Marguerite as well um, and A.D. Hanna. They were both freedom fighters who had to become less partisan and represent the whole country. But I think that that, because Samilo was such a nationalist, was be- what became important to him. And a lot of the things that he opened Government House up to, I don't know if they happened before he hosted them, but the Red Cross Fair was... And I, I suspect that was under him, but I don't know. So I'm not going to state it. But the Red Cross Fair was held in the Government House grounds. And the Renaissance Singers sang in Government House every Christmas. And all kinds of things. He opened up those private, behind-the-scenes, Duke of Windsor and Duchess of Windsor spaces to all Bahamians. I would bet anything that the Independence Tea Party was definitely his invention. Wow. I was going to just add a couple of things. Um, first of all, he's born in 1906. Mm-hmm. So he is an elder statesman. He's much older than Sir mm-hmm. Lyndon Oscar Pindling. People sometimes forget while they work together and there's the, the Black Tuesday incident and be- even before that, there's the Magnificent Six yep. in, in 1956. But 
But all of this doesn't really tell the story about how he's much older yeah. than a lot of his accomplices who are involved in the freedom movement that leads to majority rule. So again, underscoring what Nicolette is saying is that he's the perfect person to be a governor general because he's already seen as the elder statesman. Yeah. He's also a person who, while he had very strong convictions about the race issues and others, he is seen as a gentleman. Yeah. He's seen as a person who can hold a position and who is also revered and respected across the political divide in the Bahamas. It's also significant that in 1972, he is honored as a national hero. Yeah. I find this so fascinating. Yeah. We hadn't gained independence. Yet, yeah. He's already being recognized as a national hero. The last thing I want to say, it's August, not July, when he becomes that's right. governor August, general. That's right. So a lot of people don't realize there was Paul, mm -hmm. who was the first, first governor general, general and yeah. he's actually the second, but he's the first behavior. That's right. It says a lot to me that he understood the moment, but he also had some reservations about taking it on because he felt it might have muted his activism. Uh, but I think he came into the role eventually and saw that he was serving a wider a wider um, position, a wider perspective, a wider agenda, because he's representing the Bahamas in that the post, nation. Yeah, the yeah. nation right? I didn't realize that point of there being a different governor general during the time of independence until I was in government house and like you look on the wall and it's like, wait a minute. That July, date August. Is, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, you see like this little, yeah. it's like almost like an asterisk on the situation. Yeah. It's a good trivia question. It, right. Yes, who is the first governor general? <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, exactly. I'm an independent yeah. Bahamas. Um, yeah. But uh, while you guys are talking, one, when you were talking about the cotton trees, and then two, I, when Dr. Bethel, sometimes I forget you to call you. You can call me whatever you want for right. me. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I remember, I realized that a lot of the history that I know came about either, well, one, as I was leaving COB, <laughs> like literally it was the very last class I took was history. And I only took it as a throwaway class because I needed one more credit to graduate. And then... Two, when we did speak the speech uh, for uh, with with your with your troop, um, that brought the words to life. And and I, I hear and I know that Samilo has this significance in history. And I know that, like you said, he was a national hero before we even had a proper nation, right? Here it is that people recognize him as this, but that's because they lived through what he was doing. They were there to hear his words. How do we bring those things back to life? Because like that's what brought it to life for me, right? Um, for Randall Fox, right? Speak the speech. For speak the yeah. speech, right? Having to hear his words spoken with passion, mm -hmm. having to hear mm -hmm. throughout the like even uh, I think the Eleuthan Adventures, their their oh, Republic the Manifesto, yeah. Yeah. right? Hearing these things read aloud, that's like oh now I get it. Oh and of course. The uh, the Bethel Church with uh, oh with um, Sambo Scrivens um, oh, runaway sweet. home for yeah. for for Negroes or yeah yeah that, like all of this this idea was like suddenly you get a whole new perspective of this isn't just a church this is a political statement right Bethel Baptist represents way more than just just like Sunday mornings and then. Uh, the native Baptist church across the street, St. John's, St. John's right? Yeah. And the reason why we have so many different Baptist churches inside the country, like these, suddenly it's open to you. So I, to bring it back to culture and culture and history working mm -hmm. hand in hand, like how do, I think that might be the way to get young people more interested in it. Wow. But I, w I would like to defer to my learned, my learned. But, but, but you see, this is, this is the juxtaposition that is so amazing because with your youthfulness and learning and finding this out and with their knowledge base and bringing it together, it's so important for us to be able to connect these dots so that those who have the knowledge are able to connect with those who need to get the knowledge. And I like that. I like the, how you've brought that together. That's interesting because it's been 10 years since we did Speak the Speech 2. Mm. Speak the Speech 1 is the history of the Bahamas through speeches and correspondence from 1648 to 1972. And for me, the high point of that is the free at last speech by Cecil Wallace Whitfield because it's just the last one in the, in the thing. But then we did an independence 
an independent Bahamas speak the speech that was, it stopped at 2002. We didn't take it up further because it was only 2013. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it's very hard to, I mean, Chris probably could give you the specific number of years that has to pass before you can actually get a perspective on what is historically significant. But in 2013, in the 2000s were too close to be so is this now a ripe time, um, Dr. Chris? Yeah, you know, and I have this debate even at the Ministry of Education level about a book that's about to come out about, you know, when does history begin and the present, you know. And, it, and does it have to be 20 years? Yeah, the people are saying roughly about 10 years, a I decade. Think, yeah. You need time for what Nicolette has called perspective, right? Yeah. I couldn't tell what was important. I could just yeah. tell all of the things. And I still had an emotional connection to things that had happened. And I could not distance myself enough yeah. to say, is this significant? Is yeah. this not they, significant? You know, they, they say hindsight is 2020. Yeah. So hindsight has to be enveloped in the idea of perspective, allowing you to have enough distance from the event in question to, to gain some perspective. I'm not saying objectivity. No, it's you just know, perspective. It's just perspective. Yeah. That's so literally that means it. some of the things I did now, we could now look it up? Yes, Loretta. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the legacy of survival? Some things. <laughs> no, some things yeah. you don't need 10 years for. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just like trying to put this first, in like perspective. Being, you know? Like being the first First female leader of a major political party. Okay. You don't need perspective on that one. <laughs> no, no, but it's interesting because That's now I fast. see how this yeah. all comes together. Yeah. yeah. So let me just ask. So what is a behemoth? <laughs> <laughs> it's all over. So would you want me to take it or you gonna take it? You take it or we'll we'll chime in. I only will make that. So I can take it too, but let's let's start with Stephen. See, I so it depends on what is the metrics that you're measuring it by, because there's a legal definition of what a behavior no, is. No, let's not. Right, but the legal definition, it it fail. It fails for every every. I feel that it fails a litmus test, you know. And is it something to do with culture? Is it something to do with family? Like, or is being a behemoth? I want to be a behemoth because there's this whole idea. If you say you are something, then you are something. Right, particularly now in this generation. Stephen, like, I just want you to know, you asking me the question I just asked you. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the thing, right? I, I get the point. <laughs> no, but it, the, some of these questions are, it, to give them a yes or no answer is, it would be an overgeneralization. It would be like, it's, it, it's almost impossible to just say yes or no, you know, to, to something like, is this person a behemoth? Well, the first question is, does this person consider themselves a behemoth? And then, then we go over to the group and says, well, does the group consider them a behemoth? Mm. And why or why not? You know? And, and there's always that song, right? That right. this part, maybe you're too young. Um, <laughs> the popular song, you're born there, you're born there. Yeah. You're born there, yeah. you're born there. But that's not our law. I know that's not our law, and but like, that's still a popular song. It is a popular song. but So that expresses some element of, of what we actually believe, even though when we start to talk about it in legalistic terms, we have a different belief, right? But the fact that a populist, when you see something coming up in popular culture, that is something that's significant, even if the academy or the politics mm. or the law does not understand the significance. Very true. So, Dr. Curry, you want to add to that? What is the behavior? I was waiting for the PhD thesis to so oh. come out, and then I was going to give my two cents after oh, the no, 10 you can, cents. Oh, because I can talk long. Oh, well, so could I. <laughs> I I'll just in a nutshell. Uh, a Bahamian has the God given right to shop in Miami. Oh, oh <laughs> Dr. Enius. I want to Steve modify Linus. the statement by saying now it's the God given right to shop in Orlando. Okay. Oh. <laughs> now, is, is, is that in Miami or in Florida? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. no the, when, when Dr. Aeneas came up with this statement, right, somebody uh, asked him to justify it. He said, listen, there was this man who was going to Miami, and he went to the customs officers, and they said, let me see your visa. He said, I get into Miami. I'm going to the United States of America. <laughs> what do I need a visa for? Yeah. And also, Bahamians built Miami. That's the thing that we don't know. We built Miami, so there is that as well. Yes, the Miami craze. Yeah, Orlando is. Yeah, I was just. I, it, was a, it was a humorous tease. Yeah. No, I, no, I just no, want. But, I want to say it truly ties in yeah. even with with the Sir Milo Butler story, uh -huh. because you know yes. when Dr. Nicolette talks about Bahamians building Miami, mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. talk about our ancestors that went there to work on, on the, the contract, contract mm -hmm. you know, at a very early age, 
Sir Milo, having um, lost his father at an early age, his mother and his siblings, his four sisters and him, they actually relocated to Miami. Miami and that is where she started her entrepreneurship. And that is where he worked as a young man to make sure that they were educated, which imbued within his spirit this whole thing about um, civil rights and activism and everything, which they brought back here. And entrepreneurship. And, and entrepreneurship. entrepreneurship and of course, she also brought back what she had seen happening in Miami, and she created the YWCA. Yep. Francis Butler. Yep. Francis, Francis Butler. Butler. That's Francis mom. Butler, his yeah. mother. There's a park, people don't realize, there's a park on Meadow Street. That's right. Named yeah. after her. Yeah. And, 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 it's the, and it's the Mother's Park because she also was the creator of the Mother's Club. So when you talk about Miami, while you said it in jest, yeah. um, we realize that there is a very strong connection between the Bohemian diaspora and the southern United States. And, and the freedom fighting. One of the things that I didn't realize until I was doing, I guess, research, because I worked as a researcher for Dr. Saunders when she was writing um, her dissertation, which be became incorporated into Islanders in the Stream. Mm -hmm. And in the 20s, like before the 1920s, Nassau was not as segregated as it was after. And yes. Sir Milo had a shop on Bay Street. Yes. And yes. even before that, my grandmothers told me that he was the ice man. Like he Correct. brought in the ice. That's right. And there's two things there. First of all, he didn't have to bring in ice for the white Bahamian community because they already had that set up. Absolutely. He was bringing in ice for the, the non-white Bahamian community because his idea was like, why should white people only get to have fridges? So he would have an ice box. And I can't swear to it, but I know my paternal grandmother's fridge I don't think it was an ice box when I was a child, but it really looked like one. Um, <laughs> and she always used to talk about how Samilo used to deliver her ice. But then in the 20s, when they were whitening all of Bay Street, he was pushed off Bay Street and he sure. went over the hill. And I think at that moment, he was like, we are going to develop our own center of business along Blue Hill Road. And that's where you get Milo Butler and Sons. He was the Grants and Bay... The, I don't want to say it like that. The Bain Town and the Grants Town, because right. they're two separate places. That's for sure. Yes. And Bain does not have an S, and Grants does. I was only going to make the point that the, the strategic location of that store is so important because it actually is the boundary between Bain and, Bain and, Bain and Grants, Grants Town on Blue Hill Road. Yes. yes. So, I mean, it was strategic, I'm sure of it. Yeah. Yes. And of, of course, course it, was. it was a major thoroughfare to get to, to Bay, Bay Street. Street. To get to Bay Street. Yeah. And yeah. he was. He was also, um, prior to becoming governor general, he was the member of parliament for so Bain yeah, Town. Yeah, or before, so, before that for the city. That's right, for the that, Bain Town. Central and so it's very, very important that we make these connections. And you're right, it was not Bain's town, it was Bain, Bain Town. Yeah. 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 So in conclusion, I mean, we, we, we obviously need to wrap this up. I think we all could talk, you know. <laughs> for the rest of the day. But I guess the question I, I'm asking myself is, how important are these conversations and how do we have these become more mainstream? You know, Stephen, you talk about, you know, there is this desire for young people to, to understand relevance and, and to know their history, but we gotta, so how do we make these conversations more mainstream? I mean, we're doing our part by putting on a podcast, but there's more needs to be done. What do we do? I mean, uh, speaking about the, I guess you have to talk about the importance of it itself. and. Very briefly, just to, to double back to where, because when he said Florida and, and you were just talking about what it means to be a Bahamian, the Bahamas are the original names of the islands. Go along with me, right? Uh, so you have stuff like Yuma, and these things mean different things, right? But when you pull back and you get perspective, you look and say, these, these names feel more like directions. And Cuba and Jamaica and Haiti suddenly also feel like direction. So it's like, oh, Jamaica, wood and water. This is where you go for wood and water. Mm. And then this one means big, little, big island or big water island. And, this, and then you realize, oh, the whole entire Caribbean for the people who were first here was one thing. We're just driving through it. Yeah. But then we, after colonialism, we break it up and we say, no, this is the Bahamas and this is Jamaica and this is Haiti mm. and this is St. Lucia. And 
history gives us the perspective that suddenly is like, Bohemian means something else. And it may cover what part of what we are, but it doesn't cover everything that we are. And uh-huh. to deny everything that we are is to deny yourself, you know? So I, I want to say that why it's important, like how to make it more stream, I don't know, but I know what we do, and it's not necessarily making it more, more mainstream, but it inspired somebody like Stephen, who then takes it into a different medium. Absolutely. So when we perform and we put on live theater, we are always telling stories. Yeah. And many of them are Bahamian stories. And so we want, to inf- we want to inspire people who come to the theater to think more deeply and to do more research. And just to spin off the Bahamian thing, I think that we need to always recognize and remember that we are an archipelago and we're also the largest archipelago yeah. in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And if you compare us with any other archipelago in the world, there is not one Identity, there can't be because the islands are separate. So we are many different things and many different identities and many different places of origin. Well said. And, 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 you know, that is true because even when you look at the population of these varied islands, um, you look at the way we speak from island to island, there's a different dialect. The way we look, um, there, there are different hues, there are different features. I think that is so well said. And so while we have um, Stephen using modern technology and we have you using theater and we have you, Dr. Curry, using the University of the Bahamas. And the AM. And, and that's right. And, 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 and the... Um, Antiquities, monuments. Antiquities and monuments. Uh, You know, it's so important that we bring these facets all together to answer your question, Franklin, of who is a Bahamian. Well, for me, uh, what it means to be a Bahamian and why we should be celebrating and doing this kind of work, twofold. First of all, I I believe it has everything to do with our islands. The archipelagic nature of the islands allows for us to have these interesting dialects, interesting cultures or microcultures. It allows us for appreciation of how we're so different from our neighbors, but so similar. We have festive cultures like Junkanoo, which we see across the Caribbean, and yet we see the uniqueness of the Bahamians in the way that they relate to the sea and the land. The fact that we're about to, I believe, name sailing as our new national sport speaks to the affinity that we have to the sea and the Mm -hmm. competition and livelihood that we gain from the sea. And so I hate to borrow the expression from my esteemed... Uh, colleague, Dr. Gail Sonder, but we are still islanders in the stream. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and, right. absolutely. And it's, you know, when you talk about your colonial heritage, mm-hmm. I mean, cricket. Yeah. How many people in the Bahamas can actually relate to cricket? I know that we had a grouping of um, mm-hmm. Bahamians like uh, Archbish- Archdeacon William uh, Thompson, and of course, a lot of uh, other uh, Commonwealth countries uh, who had made the Bahamas their home. Cricket was definitely an English sport, and mm. it literally is not alive anymore no. in the Bahamas today. And I, it was Sa- an elite black Bahamian an sport, elite because black the Bahamian group of people sport. who paid, sailing, paid it, yeah. Speak to it, sailing is all-encompassing. We're, we're boat builders, yes. you know, yes. and of course, everything within the Bahamas is connected through our waters, right. so sailing. Yeah, I, I think it reflects the ethos of the Bahamian in ways that no other sport or recreational activity can. When you think about the the boats that they're made from hand, they're not measured mm-hmm. and calculated like boats that are made in other parts of the world. They're absolutely perfectly made for both racing and they are also working. working boats. Yeah. They were first called work boats because they would go out for weeks uh, to catch fish and they would have an area where they would be able to keep the fish as well. So the point here is this, in many ways it reflects the resiliency of our character, the, the very regatta and sailing that we now have as a, as a basic quintessential expression of our Bahamian culture originated in hard, rigorous ways that people had to earn a living in the 19th and 20th century. And each island has a different boat building tradition. We have been raised to privilege the Abaconian boat building tradition because that's it, they were white boat builders. But they... Crooked Island has its own boats and they're Long made Island, to go on the Ragged ocean. Island. Long Island has its own mm-hmm. boats. Exuma has its own boats. Mayaguana has its own boats. 
And so, and so this is an amazing, yeah. this is an amazing point in which we can conclude this today. Um, and what truly we are trying to define what a Bahamian is. We thank you so much for being our guest. And of course, we thank my dear cousin, Franklin, for being here, who will now go ahead and close us out. So I just want to thank you guys for joining us on the Legacy Podcast. Um, it's incredible to hear so many different aspects of our history. Um, and as we stated when we started this, our hope as we think about history is to invite other historians, other families to think about how they protect their own legacy and to document it and to be inspired by our story. And so we thank you, our guests, for joining us on this episode of the Legacy Podcast. And before I wrap up, I want to thank, of course, uh, Bahama, the Echo at Bahama, and of course, the Butler Legacy Foundation, our sponsors for another great episode of the Legacy Podcast. And I want to thank you, Dr. Curry, Dr. Bethel, and of course, Stephen Hanna. And you my all... dear cousin, Loretta Butler-Turner. I don't know do how it. I do this we without We could me. not do this without each other. But more importantly, we could not do this without the concurrence of amazing guests. We really, really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your perspectives. And we trust that these podcasts will help to make other families understand the importance of their legacy and that they will build legacies of their own. <laughs>